0: The following podcast is a glimpse into the life of Ecclesia Houston. We pray it is a blessing as you seek to follow Jesus, the liberating King, and live in His kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven. Good morning, Ecclesia. Uh, As Wayne told you and as some of you remember, my name is Greg Garrett. Uh, Chrissy and I are old, dear friends, and it is such a joy to be back uh, in Houston and in Ecclesia. Um, As Wayne told you, I'm a professor at Baylor, I write and I teach, And for the past few years, my focus has been largely around race and reconciliation in America, particularly through the lens of American movies. And so Sean Palmer and I and some of you uh, spent the weekend in this sacred space watching some contemporary films, Black Panther, Black Klansman, and Get Out, which was a pretty amazing thing to do in church, and uh, having what were really powerful and transformational conversations. Because one of the things that I've discovered in doing this work over the past couple of years is that when we've got a story to help us, it becomes easier to do this hard thing. When I was asked to come and preach also on Sunday as a kind of conclusion for the weekend, we knew that some folks would have been through that experience with us where we had already kind of dived deep into race and justice issues, and we knew that many of you, most of you, would be walking in cold. And so this was already going to be a challenging morning um, before the events of this weekend. Uh, As most of you know, it looks as though The uh, shooter in El Paso uh, subscribed to a white supremacist creed, and today we are looking at the death and and wounding of dozens and dozens of people strictly out of hatred, uh, which is the thing that I had been called to talk to you about this morning, but obviously there's a greater urgency and a greater difficulty to it. So I would ask that you join me in a, a preaching prayer as we launch into the teaching this morning. Please join me in prayer. Holy Spirit, speak to us. And may we have ears to hear, amen. Last weekend, my 12-year-old daughter Lily and I were talking about this weekend. Uh, For those of you that travel for work, you know that even if you have some idea what you're doing, your family generally has no idea what you're doing. And so she said, all right, what are you doing this week? Why are you going to Houston? And so I said, well, you know, on Friday and Saturday, we're going to do another of these uh, film festivals on race and film. And then on Saturday, I'm going to teach about racism. Oh, she said, that should be fun. <laughs> and she said it with more eye roll than a 12-year-old should be able to manage. But I understood exactly what she was talking about. You know, Lily is crazy smart, and she has seen enough of the world to know that there are some things that are really uncomfortable for us to talk about. You don't ask somebody how much money they make. You're not supposed to talk about religion. Never try and convince somebody that the second round of Star Wars films was good. (laughs) And never, ever talk about race. Not with a group of people that look like you, not with a group of people that don't look like you, and especially not in a mixed group of people like this one. And yet, and yet, what Chris and Sean Palmer and Wayne asked me to come to do this morning was not just to cap a weekend of film festival where we were talking about race and justice, but also to offer some of the theological teaching about why as people of faith we are drawn to care about racism in all its different permutations, in all the different ways that it finds its level in our society. And this is gonna be a hard conversation, a hard teaching this morning. It's gonna be hard for me to be up here doing it. And so I ask your prayerful support as we have what I think is the most important conversation for us to have in our culture right now, this conversation about race and prejudice and hate. A couple of months ago, we were in the historic um, Lower Manhattan Church, Trinity Wall Street, and we were doing another of these race and film festivals. And uh, it had been planned by my friend Kelly Brown Douglas and I, Uh, she's one of the great uh, African-American theologians of our time, and we have had such an amazing experience putting together programs like the one that we did here at Ecclesia this weekend. And we uh, we had invited Dr. Catherine Meeks, who is in charge of racial reconciliation and healing efforts for the Episcopal Church. In America to be one of our keynote speakers. And she told a story from the Gospel of John. It's a story that uh, you may be familiar with, but it's a story that is about Jesus' healing, but it's also much more powerful and pungent than that. Uh, It's the story about the Pool of Bethesda. And some of you know this story, that there is a a pool and, and people who are sick or infirm or disabled in some way gather around the pool, and every now and then an angel, a messenger, will stir the waters of the pool, and the rules of the game are that whoever gets in the pool first gets healed. And Jesus comes to the pool, and there's a, a man who has been there for 30-some years waiting for his turn to get in the pool. And Jesus asks him a question, and it's a simple question, but it is the question that we have to start off with this morning before we can talk about race at all. The question that Jesus asks him is this, do you want to be healed? Do you want to be healed? That's the question that Jesus had for this man who had been waiting for 30-odd years. But it's also the question that Catherine Meeks had for us that morning in um, lower Manhattan. And as she looked out over all of us, gathered there. This is what she said to us, and basically what she said is my message for us as we begin this task this morning. If you don't want to be healed, she told us, if preserving your privilege is more important than being just, if your ego is more important than recognizing that you might be wrong, if your identity is tied up with keeping somebody lower than yourself, If you don't want to be healed, then nothing that we're going to talk about this morning will make the slightest bit of difference to you. Do we want to be healed? My assumption this morning is that the people who have gathered here at Ecclesia Westside are followers of Jesus or people who are trying to follow Jesus. And if that is true, then all of us want to do better that we want to repent of our personal prejudice and to push back against institutional prejudice, that together we want to help build the rainbow kingdom of God that Desmond Tutu has taught and preached about. But if we want to be healed, it's important for us to know ourselves, it's important for us to be honest about ourselves, and I'm speaking here primarily to people who look just like I do, it's important for us to recognize themselves not just about our own personal relationship with race and hatred, but the way our society has been set up. Jeannie and I went to see Hamilton earlier this year on another trip to New York. I cannot stop thinking about it, and partly it's the music, but partly it is this. Seeing Hamilton and hearing the songs and reading Ron Chernow's incredibly long biography of Alexander Hamilton, reminds me daily that we live in a great nation, and that it is a great nation that was created, the rules were set up by white male landowners, many of whom owned slaves, all of whom agreed that it was okay to count a slave as three-fifths of a human being. Let's never forget that. Now, some of us say, oh, but we're not like that. Why should I be blamed for what my forefathers did? We don't see color. Maybe, like the father in the movie Get Out, which we watched last night, we would have voted for Obama three times. I don't see color is an admirable sentiment, but you will not hear it spoken by people of color. The reason that people who look like me can say things like that and mean well is because there has never been a day in our lives when we have not looked at our televisions or our movie screens or at the larger culture and seen ourselves reflected. Our standards of beauty, our standards of culture, ourselves, as normative. And this is a hard, hard truth. This is one of the hardest things that I'm going to have to say to you this morning. But it was brought home to me, this whole idea of white privilege, at one of the events that Kelly and I did at the National Cathedral in Washington, DC. We had just watched Spike Lee's film, Do the Right Thing. And one of the important lessons, by the way, of Do the Right Thing, there is a a major sequence in that film where people from one ethnic group say terrible things about people in another ethnic group, Uh, what Spike has called the RACIST RANT in all caps, and it, it reminds us that this is a very human thing that we do. But for people who look like me, it is hard for us to talk about race because we feel that we're made to feel guilty for things that we didn't have control over things that we didn't necessarily benefit from. And every now and then I have to be forcefully reminded how many benefits my whiteness has given me in this life. So, here's the story. I was on stage with a group of people. I was sitting next to one of my favorite writers in America, the African-American writer, Van Newkirk. Does anybody know Van's work in the Atlantic Monthly? One of my very favorite writers, I think he's like our contemporary James Baldwin. He writes about race and politics and culture, and his brain belongs in the Smithsonian. He is that brilliant. And so after Do the Right Thing, Corva Coleman from NPR, who was our moderator, asked us on the stage about our experience with police and with the justice system. And Van did this very curious to me thing. He put his hands out in front of him like this, and he grasped an imaginary steering wheel. And Corva asked him, Van, can you explain to our audience what you're doing? And he said, I am putting my hands in plain view at 10 and two on the steering wheel so that I don't get shot. And first, that broke my heart in half just that difference from my own experience. But then when Corva turned to me and said, Greg, what about your experience with law enforcement? It was a very different set of experiences. I grew up in an all-white town in rural Oklahoma. I had some familiarity with our police force. In fact, I used to get pulled over with some regularity. And here is the crazy thing. Never once, for a moment, did I fear for my life. You know what I was afraid about? I was afraid they were gonna make me open my trunk and pour out the beer that I had there that I was not supposed to have because I was 16 years old, which they did, and which they then allowed me to drive off with a warning. More privilege. So I am sitting here among a group of people, and my friend Kelly has told me that the defining difference, and one of the things that helps us understand what white privilege is, is that this is an arena where our experiences as black families and white families, white people, people of color, is so radically different. If you're a member of a white family, and you talk about having the talk with your kids, what does that talk about? Sex. It's about the birds and the bees. You're becoming a man now. And and that's, you know, it's uncomfortable, yes, but it's not deadly. What Kelly tells tells me is that in black households, when you have the talk, it is about talking with your young men about how they respond when at some point in their life, they are pulled over for driving while black or walking while black or any of the various memes while black. And she said, this is a life-or-death conversation in our community. And so I'm sitting next to Van Newkirk, one of the writers I admire most on the planet, and realizing that although he's an adult man in his 40s with children, he is still caught up in a very different system than I am. There are lots of other ways we could talk about white privilege, but here is the really essential thing, because I think a lot of times when white people hear the term white privilege, they are completely turned off by it, because they say, I have had a hard life. I have worked hard for everything I've gotten. And I believe that. I believe that there are a bunch of us here today who have worked and fought and scraped for everything we've managed to do in this life. That's not what white privilege is about. It's not what it is. It is about the very simple fact that Mr. Hamilton and Mr. Jefferson and all of those white male landowners set up a set of circumstances in our culture that make it harder to be alive if you look one way instead of another way. So that is a hard thing to have to hear, a hard thing to wrestle with. But I think it's an important thing for us to to have in front of us as we move forward. Because really, if we can't agree that there is a problem, then what are we going to do? The second thing that I have to think we agree on before we can move any further is just very simply this. We have to have a common idea about what racism is. You cannot pick up the newspaper, you cannot watch the cable news without hearing people of every stripe calling people of every other stripe racist. And just sort of, if I can park this over here in parentheses, polls show us that you agree with this person or this group based largely on your partisan political affiliation, which frankly is a dangerous way for us to solve problems if we are people of faith. Our first point of moral problem-solving should not be which party we voted for, which person we voted for, but what does the revelation of God through the person of Christ Jesus have to teach us about these matters? And so, in the classes that I teach at Baylor, which tend to be film classes or literature classes or theology classes, racism almost always comes up. And so what we try to do early on is I ask my kids, they're all my kids, no matter how old they are, they're my kids, is can we agree on what racism is? Because a lot of the stuff that people are, when they're throwing racism out, it has nothing to do with what racism is. And semester after semester, year after year, this is the definition they bring back. And if this feels like a workable definition, I think we can kind of move forward and talk about it. What they always tell me is, racism is treating somebody as less intelligent, less worthy, less human, based on what they look like or where they come from. It's a kind of prejudice that's based on surface appearance, not on knowledge. It's often grown out of ignorance. But that has always seemed like a worthwhile working definition for me. To treat somebody as less than an equal member of God's household. To treat somebody as less than because of what they look like. So before we move on, before we move off of this question of do we wanna be healed, I also wanna address Here and here and here and here in the room, there are gonna be people thinking, you know, this is a political thing. Why do we talk about it on Sunday morning? Why should we care about it as people of Christ? Why are we talking about it in this space? Kelly Brown Douglas has a signature line that she pulls out pretty often when we do these events together, and it's very simple, it's this. Talking about race, she says, is not optional. It is the gospel." Talking about race is not optional. It is the gospel. The theologian Paul Tillich spoke about sin in ways that were very different from the ways the pastors in my Southern Baptist pulpits growing up talked about sin. But what Tillich said is that sin is separation, separation from God, separation from other human beings, and separation from our true selves, from the people that God has called us to be. And that feels real to me. And so if the good news of Jesus is about tearing down those walls, about moving out of that separation into a place of connection with God and each other and our most authentic selves, Then, what Kelly is saying is absolutely true. That this is one of those ways in which tearing down the walls between us is absolutely the gospel. We're going to take a look at something from Scripture, and since this is the core of our teaching today, I'm going to ask you to read it along with me. Um, This is from uh, Paul's second letter to the Corinthians, and it is, for me, one of the most sort of formational things about who it is that we're called to be in Christ Jesus. And let's, let's take a look at that, and if we could, we'll read it together. Therefore, if anyone is united with the Anointed One, that person is a new creature. The old life is gone, and see, a new life has begun. All of this is a gift from our Creator God who has pursued us and brought us into a restored and healthy relationship with Him through the anointed. And He has given us the same mission, the ministry of reconciliation, to bring others back to Him. It is central to our good news. God was in the anointed making things right between Himself and the world. This means He does not hold their sins against them, but it also means he charges us to proclaim the message that heals and restores our broken relationships with God and each other. So that phrase, it is central to our good news. Most of you know that that's translated from the Greek, and what it is is gospel. What the Apostle Paul is telling us is that the Christian gospel is about reconciliation and that we, all of us, who call ourselves followers of Jesus, are called to this act of reconciling, of healing those broken relationships with God and each other. And so where human selfishness and fear have built walls, we are called to smash them down. Where we ourselves have put up barriers, we are called to tear them down. One of my favorite elements in Spike Lee's film Black Klansman, which we watched yesterday, um, is about the growing trust and friendship between the two male characters. Ron Stallworth, who is the black cop who wants to infiltrate the Ku Klux Klan, and Flip Zimmerman, a detective who was raised Jewish. Part of this relationship is Flip's realization that he has, as Ron puts it, skin in the game. That the Ku Klux Klan hates him just as much as as they hate Ron. But honestly, part of it is simply that the walls between them begin to come down, as different as they are, as separated as they are in terms of their identities. Their human connection begins to force aside the barriers between them, and they begin to see each other. What that story helps remind me, what that movie does for me, is to remind me that we all, have skin in the game when it comes to racism and hatred. Maya Angelou, of blessed memory, used to say, quoting the words of the writer Terence, I am human, therefore nothing human can be alien to me. The great Anglican preacher and poet John Donne said it in this way, ask not for whom the bell tolls, it tolls for you. What Dr. King used to say is that as long as any of us are not free, then none of us are free. And in Manuel, Lynn Miranda's Hamilton, the character of John Lawrence puts it this way, we will never be free until we end slavery. Do we want to be healed? then we have to work toward reconciliation. Reconciliation for all and all sorts of reconciliation. In the kingdom that Jesus came to proclaim, there is no Jew nor Gentile, no slave nor free, no difference in the way we are seen in the eyes of God. And until we ourselves are free of the slavery of thinking otherwise, we can never be free to enter into that abundant life, which we are told is the goal for us. So one final teaching from Scripture and our parting challenge, if we are called to this work of reconciliation, what are the challenges gonna be for us as people of faith? What is that gonna look like? What is the discipline gonna be? How hard is it gonna be? I wanna tell you a story. Um, At first, this is not going to seem like it has anything to do with anything, but please trust my storytelling instincts here. Give me just like three minutes worth of credit. Um, In the early 2000s, shortly after my divorce, I drove a series of elderly Volvo station wagons. Uh, I was playing in a band back then, and so I needed the room for my gear. And they were cheap and reliable until they weren't. (laughs) And so, over those four or five years, there were a number of times when I found myself standing beside a road with my thumb out, like something out of a movie, people actually do still hitchhike, hoping someone who was not a serial killer would help me get to the next place that I had to go. So, during that time, there was an occasion when I was driving back from northern New Mexico through the high New Mexican desert. And I had a flat tire about 100 miles outside of Roswell, New Mexico. Now, if you're somebody who drives old Volvos, that is not an unusual thing. So I fixed the flat, and I got back on the road. And then a couple of miles later, I started hearing that same familiar sound from my spare tire. And that was a bad thing. Because even now, there's no cell coverage out there. (laughs) And so I did the only thing that I knew how to do from having had... Volvo station wagons. Uh, I pulled the flat tire out of the back of my car, and I lugged it out to the highway, and I stuck out my thumb. And for 30 minutes, people passed me by. And I don't blame them. I would not have picked me up either. I was sweaty and grimy, and I had long hair, and I looked like the kind of person who you shouldn't pick up by the side of the road. And so Winnebago's Flashed past, and one-ton trucks, and black SUVs. And I knew that in all of those vehicles, they were just blowing the air conditioning full, right? And then after about a half an hour of standing out there by the side of the road with the the rim of the tire cutting into my hand, this tiny two-seat coupe pulled up. And inside the car were two very large people, And the backseat of the car was full of camping equipment and junk food. And they said, you get on in here. And so the woman who was riding with her husband somehow straddled the gear shift with her neck at a really unhealthy angle. And I somehow squeezed in enough to close the door. And off we went down the highway toward Roswell. Now, it became very apparent very quickly that these people were very different from me. Um, They were coming back from a VA hospital in New Mexico. The husband had served in Vietnam, had come back with really terrible post-traumatic stress disorder and a ruined back. And they had been camping by the highway along the way to save money. Um, And although I have great respect for the military, I think of myself as a Christian pacifist, and the last sort of engagement that I had with anything related to wars or military, just before I met these folks, is I had spoken in an anti-war rally on the Baylor campus. It also became apparent very quickly, and I don't say this is a value judgment in any way, but they had not had a whole lot of formal education. I mean, you could tell just by the way they talked, while I have had entirely too much formal education. And so the really interesting thing about it is that we were different in almost every way that people can be different. If you think about the cultural divides that we make for ourselves now, the the gated communities that we put ourselves in, these people would not have been in my gated community or the next gated community over. We were almost nothing alike. But here is the thing, these good people, who were deeply conservative and deeply patriotic, were also deeply kind. They drove me all the way to Roswell and took me, of course, to Walmart, where I got my tire fixed. And then they insisted on driving me back to my car, 200 miles out of their way. We left the wife behind so she didn't have to break her neck. And as we drove through the darkening New Mexico night, he began telling me about his life, and the walls between us began to fall. He and his wife had also figured out that I was a very different kind of person than they were. And when he talked to me about his experience in Vietnam, which was horrific, there was a moment when he turned to me and in apology, he said to me, some of the things we had to do were not very nice. And I thanked him for his service, and we arrived at my car and since it was dark by that point, he parked with his headlights so that I could light up the, uh, the task of changing the tire and when my car began to wobble on the jack, he placed his ruined back against my Volvo station wagon to hold it steady. And then he shook my hand and declined any offer of payment and drove off into the night. And you know, I was not a preacher in those days. I wasn't much of a Christian of any kind, but I was raised in the church, and I knew perfectly well what had just happened to me. I stood there with my eyes full of tears, knowing that in this clash of cultures, in this world full of fear of of people who are not like us and suspicion of difference, that I had been rescued by Samaritans. Jesus tells that story, as you know, about an encounter between people from vastly different cultures. And when he tells that story, he tells it something like this. I'll I'll make it very quick because most of you know it. There is a man who is traveling from Jerusalem down to Jericho, and he's set upon by robbers who beat him and leave him for dead. And a priest passes by and leaves him lying there. And a Levite, also attached to the temple, passes by and leaves him lying there. But a Samaritan of a race hated by the Jews stops and tends to his wounds and puts him on his donkey and takes him to an inn and asks the innkeeper to care for him. And as you probably remember, Jesus tells this story in response to a student of the the Jewish laws who asked him, well, who is my neighbor? hoping, I'm sure, for the narrowest possible construction of that. Who is my neighbor? People in my gated community, people who look like me, people who believe like me, people who love like me. But that's not Jesus' answer. And in fact, what St. Augustine concluded from this story, very simply, is the same thing that I think we're supposed to conclude from. It. Our neighbor is everyone. We are called to love and care for everyone. And here's the thing that makes that hard. When Dr. King used to talk about this story, and he used to preach it in the parish, and some of you know that he told this story the night before he was killed in Memphis. He used to talk about the visit that he and his wife, that Mrs. King had made, to the Holy Land and about driving that winding, treacherous road from Jerusalem to Jericho. And and he talked about how it used to be called the Bloody Road and how people could lie in wait at any place along there. And he said, you know, there may be a reason that those two professional religious people walked by and left somebody in the ditch. Maybe it's not that they were in a hurry. And, and maybe it's not, as this is sometimes taught, that they were afraid that he was dead. And if they touched the body, they would be ceremonially unclean. They wouldn't be able to fulfill their functions in the temple. Dr. King said this, maybe those two good people rushed away from this because they were afraid. Maybe they didn't do the right thing because they were afraid if they stopped to help, if they took an interest in somebody besides themselves, that something terrible could happen to them. And so this is what Dr. King said, I imagine the first question which the priest and the Levite asked was this, if I stop to help this man, what will happen to me? But by the very nature of his concern, the good Samaritan turned the question. If I do not stop to help this man, what will happen to him? Now, in his sermon, Dr. King said that the the Samaritan was engaged in what he called a dangerous altruism. Altruism is a good preaching word. But when Dr. King talked to the sanitation workers the night before he died, he used this phrase instead. Dangerous unselfishness. We are called, he said, to dangerous unselfishness. That is at the heart of our calling, the heart of this call to reconciliation, the heart of our Christian message. And I think about my Samaritans, who could have looked at the grimy, long-haired college professor and said, I've got nothing in common with this person. He looks kind of (laughs) crazy. I'm going to leave him by the side of the road." In life, it seems to me that as hard as it is to take on that calling, the most important thing we can do is practice that dangerous unselfishness, to reach out with generosity and hospitality. And it is a hard thing right now because, frankly, we live in a world where we are tremendously fearful. And we live in a world where we often operate on what we think of as scarcity. There's not enough. I don't have enough. I don't have enough for my family, or there's not enough for my people, or there's not enough for my tribe. And when we push that to its furthest, most dangerous extent, it becomes white supremacists marching through Charlottesville, saying, you will not replace us. I do not in any way condone them or their actions, but I understand where they come from. Fear of difference and living in this model of scarcity. If we help other people, there won't be enough for people like me. And so as we come to the end of our time together this morning, here's what I think I wanna leave you with. The most important things that we can be doing are to be responding to the hard problems of this world with love and patience and generosity. And and this teaching is not just a Christian teaching. I said, you know, I'm supposed to outline the theological ways that we think about race. I mean, every wisdom tradition has its version of the golden rule, that we should, at the very basic level, treat people as we would want to be treated. James Baldwin, in a letter to his nephew, Tells him that in the end it is irrelevant whether white people ever accept him or not. And although James Baldwin left behind being a preacher very early in his life, this still preaches. The really terrible thing, old buddy, is that you must accept them. And I mean that very seriously. You must accept them and accept them with love. Who then is my neighbor? Everyone. And this is a hard, hard teaching because it means you do not get a day off. And at the end of Black Klansmen, when a tiny victory has been won, the problem of racism and injustice still continues. And that's the story of our life. It's why I love to think about faith not as a moment when we make a decision, but as a journey which is lifelong. And some days we do better and some days we do worse. But truly, it is the thing that we are called to do, the thing that we are most um, driven by in terms of our own Christian faith. Those Good Samaritan moments that we recognize in stories like the one Jesus told or the one that I just told are the things to which we are called in this life. We live in a world that is full of fear and hatred a world where maybe it feels safer not to offer hospitality and generosity, especially to somebody who doesn't look like us. But we can still demonstrate that dangerous unselfishness, and we should. This is the gospel. Please pray with me. Holy One, we come now to meet Jesus at this table. As we take this bread and wine that by your grace has become something more than bread and wine, begin to heal our brokenness and separation. Help us to dedicate ourselves to hospitality and generosity. Give us strength to be those agents of reconciliation tearing down the walls that separate us. Give us the courage to love. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you would like more information, please visit our website at www.ekthesiahouston.org.